You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey guys, so this is it. This is a season finale of Adventures in Finance. Now, we're pretty sure most of you are investors or are interested in investing. And because it is the last show of the season, we want to leave you with something that we think you're going to like and find pretty useful. And we think it's pretty special. So here it is. This week, we have not one, but three world-leading investors and experts who specialize in different aspects of investing. And the best part, we got them to share their frameworks and favorite indicators so that you can have a well-rounded toolbox for approaching markets and ultimately become a better investor. First up is Jesse Felder, value investor, former Bear Stearns and multi-billion dollar hedge fund trader, is going to tell us how he analyzes fundamentals and sentiment. Then Mark Yusko, also a value investor who oversees $3 billion at his firm, is going to show how big picture historical analogs place us in the late 1920s. And finally, Tian Yang, the head of research at Variant Perception, an elite macro research firm that serves institutional clients with actionable insights, will explain how growth and liquidity-leading indicators can place you ahead of the major trends. When you put all this together, we think there's a good chance you'll get something that can help you become a better investor. So, this week on Adventures in Finance, let's make some f***ing money. Also coming up in this week's episode, we have our long short segment, as per usual, when Aaron and I discuss the good and, of course, the not-so-good stories of the week. Well, I mean, look, I don't think... I think maybe I can approach this from a different angle this week. Uh, I am long gratitude, and so I'm just extremely grateful, and I'm extremely grateful for the for the listeners as well. I mean, the engagement, the questions, um, the ideas. My short this week... I, you know, I was originally uh, going to be short Washington, but... I found something far more entertaining to be short of, and that is uh, the security officials at the Swedish Transport Agency's data department. And finally, in a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we ask them to share an investing lesson they derived from that experience. Yeah, and this week we have the excellent Josh Crum, the co-founder and chief strategy officer of Gold Money Inc., and Josh discussed what he got wrong when he strayed from a long-term greedy perspective when investing and partnering with others in business. I am Grant Williams. And I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is July 27th, 2017, and welcome to episode 26 of Adventures in Finance. To my right is my trusty producer and sound engineer, James. James, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing all right. You know, I think you finally, now that we've come to the end of the season, it's appropriate for me to add that trusty moniker uh, to you, to your name, I think, because, I mean, it, we've arrived at 26, no explosions, no missed episodes, so... Uh, I didn't spill any drinks on the console. That, that's always a, a good sign. Well, we're, we're, we're still running that risk. We shouldn't speak too early. I see something on your desk right now. Yeah, well... <laughs> But you've also been really patient with us. I know you've had tons and tons of edits. 
Um, so anyways, I'm, I just want to pile on the, the compliments before uh, Grant got his, yeah. uh, his taken. Well, even though we're in episode 26, to me, it feels like episode 126. Really? That's how many edits I've had to do. Oh, well, stop complaining. <laughs> I've heard enough. Grant, how are you? Where in the world are you? Fellas, I am in Vancouver, sunny Vancouver, um, a beautiful city. But first, I should apologize. Uh, Aaron, the memo I sent you, uh, there was a typo in it. It's rusty producer, not trusty producer. So uh, you might want to read that. You might want to read that bit again. Yeah, so I am in sunny Vancouver for the Sprott Natural Resource Symposium this week and to do a little bit of real vision filming while I'm up here. And it's uh, the weather is spectacular. So uh, I'm looking forward to actually getting out and sampling some of it. Awesome. You know, Grant, we had Rick Rule on two weeks ago for the Things I Got Wrong segment. Um, and I remember discussing the conference with him a little bit. Uh, what actually goes down there? I mean, what are you, uh, what are you doing besides filming for Real Vision TV? Well, I, I am going to uh, bore the audience after death, no doubt, with a speech. But there, uh, I mean, anyone who's anybody in the resource world is here. It's a, it is a great conference. So uh, it's, a, it's a packed house. It should be a lot of fun this week. All right, Grant, that's awesome. Well, let's move on first to our long shorts. Actually, you know what? Before we move on to the long short segment, uh, Grant, I think we, um, we promised last week that we, we were going to make an announcement of sorts. We did, and and I, I guess it should be me that makes the announcement. It would it would feel wrong for you to do it. Uh, so yeah, folks, uh, for all you listening out there, very sad day today because Aaron is going to be leaving the Real Vision podcast at the end of August uh, to go back to work in finance, his first love, and back to his home country in Canada. Um, Aaron, this uh, this is. This is the end of a very short uh, but immensely enjoyable era, I'm afraid. Oh, boy. Yeah, Grant, it's, I didn't know how to break it um, you know, to, to Adam, to you, to James initially. But yeah, I will be going back into finance. Uh, you're right. It is absolutely my first love. And um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a tremendous nine to ten months with Real Vision and made so many great friends here. So uh, it, it is definitely bittersweet. Well, yeah. Now, I know you can't actually... Uh say too much about where you're going um, and what you're going to do, but perhaps you could uh, give people as much color as you can. Grant, you already kind of let the cat out of the bag, but but no, yeah, I'm going to be going back to Canada, as you said, and uh, I'm going to be working in sort of a, a portfolio analyst, uh, markets analyst kind of role, um, you know, looking forward to figuring out how we could put on risk and, and hopefully doing some more research. So uh, it's something I'm definitely really looking forward to. And as you said, finance is my first love. Well, it's a it's a it's a big loss for the podcast. You know, it's been a lot of fun, but uh, but I'm you know I'm I'm super excited for you. I think you I think you're going to do a great job up there. So so you know, good luck with everything. Now, the the unfortunate thing is that leaves a big Aaron shaped hole in the podcast. So here's where you guys in the audience come in because we were sitting down trying to figure out how do we fill this Aaron sized hole. Um, now, had it been a James-sized hole, we realized that we could just put a pot plant in the middle. <laughs> but we really do need to kind of plug this gap. So we are going to do what we've done with tremendous success throughout the history of Real Vision. Let's reach out to you, our audience, to see if we can't find someone to replace Aaron on the podcast. So, Aaron, why don't you tell um, the guys and girls listening out there exactly what it is they would need to do? Well, Grant, I kind of alluded to it earlier on. Um, and I think the first major thing is that the successful candidate has to have a demonstrated interest or at least, you know, maybe some experience in financial markets. Um, what we do is we cover the big stories in financial markets, in economics, in technology, and it would really, really help. And I think it's almost necessary for someone to have that sort of interest or background. The second thing I would say is, you know, this person has to have an ability to turn that interest into substantive research and exciting stories. So stories that they can tell to a large audience and write scripts and, and really kind of walk the audience through these stories. 
Um, the third thing I would say is, you know, that person has to be confident and comfortable with public speaking and recording. I mean, that's what we do every week. And in my capacity, it's not only for podcasts. I mean, it's also for TV. I've done a little bit of voiceover work for TV as well. So, you know, being having that comfort with speaking publicly. And I guess the last point I would make or the last skill that I think is is required and necessary is, you know, you got to be organized and you have to have solid, solid time management um, because we are a startup. Everyone's wearing multiple hats, and in particular with the podcast, we have a very tight, regular, uh, weekly production publishing schedule. So, you know, making sure that you're organized and, and have really solid time management skills, I think uh, that's essential. So, uh, I guess I would say I would say those four things, and obviously there are other nice to haves, but uh, those would be the four main things that we're looking for in a candidate. Well, I would right? I would add one more to the mix, and uh, you can shut your ears now, Aaron. But uh, you know, your work ethic is phenomenal. Um, and so, you know, to your point about this being a startup, I mean, we all work crazy long hours, work ridiculously hard until and we, until we get the stuff done that needs to be done. And you know, your work ethic has been uh, has been incredible. So we definitely need someone that has a similar similar attitude to working when necessary, rather than on specific uh, hours. Is he done? Can yeah. I? Oh, okay. Sorry, I didn't hear what you said oh. there, Grant. I'm just kidding. No, I heard all of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate it tremendously. And, you know, it's been really easy to, to put in the work and, and to roll up the sleeves because, you know, from day one, um, even as a fan of Real Vision, I, I, the, the, the ethos, the message and the story resonated with me tremendously. And, you know, the whole no bullshit, um, you know, no holds barred, like just getting right to the ideas, getting to the thinking and, and not to be inundated and polluted with ego and bravado, I think. So it was very easy to put in the work, um, I, you know, Cayman Islands is also pretty nice. So when you work hard, you're rewarded with a nice, uh, nice environment here. But I just want to reiterate, it was really not easy to work hard, but it aligned with everything that I believed in. So uh, it was my pleasure. Well, look, after that, uh, that's, that's probably the longest commercial we've ever done. So I guess we need to tell people what to do. So <laughs> if you're out there and you're listening right. in uh, replacing our departing friend here, then uh, please send us an email at podcast at realvision.com. Be sure to include a podcast hosting role in the subject line so we can uh, we can fish it out of the mailbox and we will get back to you with a job description and details on the next steps in their process. But as a man much smarter than me once said, time marches on, Aaron, so all the schmaltz and the sentimentality out of the way, we need to get on with this week's podcast. And why don't we kick that off with our long short segment. And seeing as you are the departing uh, half of the team, I'm going to do the gentlemanly thing and I'm going to go first. So, my short this week. Ah, typical. Grant. My short this week. I, you know, I was originally uh, going to be short Washington, Donald Trump, and the Republicans and the Democrats. I'm so tired of everything that's going on. It's driving me insane. Oh. You can't. You can't wake up in the morning without more of this nonsense coming out of these, you know, children in suits on the Capitol Hill. But I found something far more entertaining to be short of, and that is uh, the security officials at um, the Swedish Transport Agency's data um, department. Now, apparently there's been a massive data breach. That is so niche. I know, right? There's been a massive data breach in the Swedish Transport Agency after they mishandled an outsourcing deal with IBM. Now, what's happened is they've somehow managed to leak the data, uh, the private data of every single vehicle in the country including those used by both police and military. Now you think, okay, fine, what's the big deal about the, about the vehicles? But the data breach exposed the names, photographs, and home addresses of millions of Swedish citizens. They included fighter pilots in the Air Force, 
members of the military secret service, uh, police suspects, oh everybody God. in the witness relocation program. Um, I mean, it's just, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, breach. And, and, and how it happened is even more remarkable. The, uh, the Swedish Transport Agency uploaded IBM's entire database onto cloud services, what they're trying to move to everything to the cloud. And what they did with all this data, they emailed it. They just emailed it to IBM in clear text. Uh, so they sent this out in the... The old Hillary Clinton it, trick. Here's the thing. When the error was discovered, the transport agency, and I quote, merely thought they would send a new list in another email asking the subscribers to delete the old list themselves. Now, you know, oh my God. way to keep data secure, fellas. So uh, my short this week is the <laughs> data handlers of the Swedish transport agency, Transport... Uh, now, forgive you, all the Swedes out there, if I, if I pronounce this correctly. Uh, transport Stilstyrelesen. How's that? I, you know, I don't even know what to add to that because <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, we, we know it's, it's not, we ran this piece on cybersecurity and it, I, I guess maybe it just comes down to our laziness and our lack of wanting to understand how these things work because, you know, we will click accept onto terms and conditions willy nilly without even reading it. And, and so I guess it just doesn't surprise me that we, you know, you would send this kind of data over email and and you should not be surprised if it you know if it if it comes out and I mean it sounds like the 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 exposure and and what was revealed is you know it's not non trivial. But you know you know the interesting thing the interesting thing for me with this is had this been done deliberately by somebody inside the government uh, it would have been an Assange slash Snowden situation. Right. But because it's True. done by you know, a, a moron somewhere. Um, Nothing's going to happen. Yeah, you know, just that, that that blurred line between the leaking of information intentionally and accidentally is perhaps more scary than anything. Yeah, it really is. Well, Grant, you know what? Let me. Uh, I don't know if I can match you on the scary scale with my short this week, but this week I am short thirteen-year-olds buying homes in Australia, and uh, I don't know if you saw <laughs> this story. <laughs> um, I mean, look, the the title itself is a little bit. Um, I don't know. It's not fake news, but it is a little bit facetious. Uh, the 13-year-old obviously did not buy the home himself. I mean, uh, the piece of real estate that he bought was, I think, amounted to uh, half a million dollars. Uh, it was a four-room, one-bath home uh, in Melbourne's Frankston region. Now, a four-room, one-bath kind of kind of home is this? Um, anyway, well, four rooms, not four bedrooms. Oh yeah, true. <laughs> um. Now, Grant, I just want to read you a couple of segments. Uh, I want to read you a quote from this piece. And so, you know, this kid, uh, 13-year-old Akira Ellis, and the article that I'm looking at, he's, he's here pictured standing next to a woman named Sherry Barber, and she is, uh, she is like a, a home renovation expert in, in Australia. I don't know if you've heard of her. But 13-year-old Akira is quoted as saying, Buying a house can be quite scary, especially when it's your first purchase and renovation. There are so many things to think about. It's a big investment and a mistake can cost you a lot. Now, that's spoken like a true expert. Um, I, I, you know what? I, I've I spoken like a true 13-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> well, 13-year-olds in Australia. I, you know what? Look, I don't want to be too harsh on, on the kid. I mean, everyone has to get their start somewhere. And actually, it's kind of cool that you know, a, a, a person of his age is being exposed to finances and real estate. I think that's, that's great education. But, you know... For, for your parents to help you buy, um, you know, a, a half a million dollar home. And then, you know, his goal is, I think, you know, renovate it and then to flip it. 
Uh, I don't know. I, I think he's just signing up for a very, very expensive lesson in investing when the business cycle and the liquidity cycle yeah. eventually turns. Um, so you know what? I don't, I'm, I don't want to be too, too short the kid because I think he's going to get a, a good education out of this experience. But I don't know. You, when you see stuff like this, you just can't help but think like, you know, is this... I don't necessarily put it up there with the Mike Tyson brokerage account or, you know, brokerage firm um, short that I had maybe a couple weeks back, but uh, this one's definitely up there. So this week I am short 13-year-old kids buying half a million dollar homes. Mm, two words spring to my mind immediately, tax dodge. Somehow there's something going on mm. here that having the house in the kid's name and not the parent's name might be a, advantageous from a tax perspective, but who knows? Let, let He was without sin and all that stuff well that, that brings <laughs> us on to our longs for the week and what with this being the last episode before our summer break i am this week long of our fantastic audience um who over the last 26 weeks have just been tremendous in terms of the support they've given us sorry so, sorry you literally what? stole my long that was gonna be my long i was gonna bring the Good. sentimentality back well i'm glad i got in there first now you oh, have to come up with someone else you suck all right I think you should be short James. I can't be short James. That's hey, a hedge. You've, re- you've already done uh, short each. I'm, you are I'm like, out of the running. You are 26x short James this whole entire season. I know. I'm levered short of James, and I'm really comfortable with it. Um, yes, our wonderful audience who over the last 26 weeks of uh, Adventures in Finance have been just incredible. The support you guys have given us, the emails we've had. And whilst I do understand that I may well have upset the Adam Sandler fans of the world with my poor review on his movies uh, in the Netflix context. I apologize to all of you out there who've been watching Happy Gilmore and crying yourselves to sleep ever since. Uh, And I'm happy to report that most of the feedback on um, my Baby Driver review was positive, although a couple of people did seem to be angling for a refund when they told me they were disappointed with it. Um, But all in all, you guys have been absolutely tremendous, and we can't thank you enough. There's There's a ton of podcasts out there uh, and for, for all of you to find the time to listen to this one, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just an incredible, uh, incredible thing for us to have. So thank you. Oh, Grant, you audience. stole my long. It can also be your long. I know. We, I, we, Grant, do you remember the episode where we had the same long or we had the same short? I do. Yeah, no, we, we had, had the, the same, same long. long. Thought, we, did, yeah. we did have the same Well, long. I mean, look, I don't think, I think maybe I can approach this from a different angle this week. Uh, I am long gratitude and... You know, not to bring the sentimentality back into it, but, you know, as it was extremely difficult to, you know, to to make the change and to make the move. And um, when I think back into the past eight months, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity that I've had here at Real Vision to speak to a, a large audience and, and to look at stories and to have the freedom to write about the stories that I want to write about and what I found interesting. Um, and I've learned a tremendous amount from you, Raul, and, and everyone in the office. It's just, and, and James, sorry. Uh, no, but it's, it's been a tremendous, tremendous experience, great learning experience. Um, and so I'm just extremely grateful and I'm extremely grateful for the, for the listeners as well. I mean, the engagement, the questions, um, the ideas, it's, it's been, all that has, has culminated these past couple of months and, and the feedback's been excellent and, and uh, wouldn't have been able to accomplish what we've accomplished with the podcast without our listeners. So uh, I'm extremely grateful. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I can top yours though, Grant. All right. Well, let's, let's not even try to. James, I need you to insert a sound effect here, like a record being scratched so we can change the dynamic, get away from the sentimentality and get back to this week's documentary feature. Well, Grant, we've now come to the final feature segment of the season. And 
You know, we've spoken with a lot of great investors, fund managers, and analysts over the past five months, but we've covered stories with long time horizons like One Belt, One Road, geopolitics, even going back in time, looking at John Law and then looking forward to the pension crisis. We've also told stories with high relevance to the current developments like Bitcoin, cybersecurity, and the reflation theme. And then finally, we've talked on topics that have timeless applicability, like volatility, psychology of trading, and demographics. Now that we've come to the end of the season, I actually wanted to leave our listeners with something that I, I know that they want. You know, it's the reason they're here in the first place. Yeah, like we love the amazing stories and, and looking at the long time horizon, but what are you guys actually interested in? You guys want to make money, plain and simple. And yes, learning is great, being entertained is great, but you want to make money. And more than that, you don't want to be spoon-fed that stuff. I mean, you actually want to understand how it's done. This week, we're going to give you an unadulterated view into the minds of three top investors and analysts out there. And with each contributor, we try to get to the fundamental lens through which they view the world and they view markets. We wanted to understand how they apply that framework and what it means. And along the way, we asked them for their favorite indicators. This really is a three-course meal of investment thinking. That's right, Grant. And the first person I spoke with was Jesse Felder. Now, Jesse was a trader at Bear Stearns and then a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. And he now publishes the Felder Report and hosts the Super Investors Podcast, which I highly recommend you guys check out if you haven't already. Um, I use a variety of lenses. I really started out as purely a fundamental guy and, you know, with um, a healthy dose of sentiment in there, you know, it was the, the Buffett, uh, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful, kind of adding that to your value discipline. But I, I started adding technical analysis and, uh, you know, I mean, a little over a decade ago. And this is really the, you know, Todd Harrison calls it his four legs of the trading table. It's, you know, fundamentals, sentiment, technicals, and either structural or macro. But it's really firmly grounded in fundamentals mainly. You know, Grant, so many people, I think, misunderstand Jesse as this perma bear, but I think even fewer stop to ask, you know, what, what does framework actually consist of? So I asked him to walk us through each pillar of his framework, beginning with fundamental and where he sees that uh, as it stands today. Valuations are off the charts. I think a, a lot of people uh, look at it as the second most highly valued market of all time. I think if you you look at like the CAPE ratio, that's the way that it appears. But um, you know, there's a problem with the CAPE ratio in that it, it doesn't really adjust for profit margins. Profit margins have been very high, and so earnings have been higher than they you know normally should be. I think if you look at things like price to sales ratios, uh, the Buffett indicator uh, is one of my favorites. Um, because it's so highly negatively correlate, correlated with future 10-year returns. But we're essentially the same valuation today on a price-to-sales ratio that we were back at the peak of the dot-com bubble. So, And then when you look at, you know, the, and the big difference between today and back then, it was back then there was, you know, big sectors of the market that were really cheap. Nobody wanted to own the old economy, bricks-and-mortar stuff. There was actually good value to be found today. That's just not the case. And the, the what exemplifies that the best, I think, is the median price-to-sales ratio in the S&P 500 is like twice as high as it was back in 2000. So, I really think this is the most overvalued equity markets we've ever seen. I think Jesse's so right here, Aaron, you know, and what really strikes me always when you get into these conversations with people, when they compare things to 2000 and talk about how, well, you know, look, we're not, we're not as expensive as we were in 2000, 
no, we're not quite as expensive as we were at the most overpriced levels in all of recorded stock market history right before an 85% correction in the Nasdaq. So, so to not quite be there, to me, is not a reason to buy more. It's a reason to be really, really cautious. And, and you know, all these metrics that Jesse points out are so true. You look at the charts of medium price to sales. You know, John Hussman has a great chart of that. You look at the Buffett indicator, and they're all up there at nosebleed levels. I mean, I, I get vertigo looking at some of these charts. Yeah. And this is why I want to start with Jesse, because he is at his core a value investor who looks at valuations. And so, you know, in our world of, of macro and even real vision, we actually don't spend a lot of time looking at, say, bottom up fundamentals or even looking at valuation per se. So I thought it was really interesting to start with Jesse. And he brought up a couple of interesting uh, metrics there. You know, for example, the CAPE ratio, which is you know, the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. I'm sure many of our listeners know that. But looking at median price of sales in the S&P, I mean, these are all classic value investing um, indicators that you look at, you know, let's say. And, and he also mentioned the Buffett indicator, which is the market cap to GDP. So I think right there, there are some, there are some, there are some indicators that you can take immediately and implement it in your own framework to understand valuations. I think this is the one that's really hardest to to get a handle on, and I really don't like so much the uh, the sentiment surveys. Um, I, I trust a lot more what pe- people are actually doing with their money, and so you know you could look at investors' intelligence, the American Association of Individual Investors. They all do surveys, and they all say different you know different things. For me. I like to see what people are doing with their money, and, and the, the easiest thing to look at there is just look at margin debt. And uh, margin debt is off the charts, not just nominally, but you look at it relative to GDP, and it's as high as it's, you know, it's actually higher today than it was in 2007, higher today than it was back in 2000. And so people feel very, very comfortable, you know, leveraging, you know, out the wazoo right now in, in buying risk assets. Um, but anecdotally, I'm seeing stuff too, and, and anecdotally, as I, I really like to kind of get a feel for that too. Seeing baby boomers put 90, 95% of their money in the stock market, which is absolutely unheard of. Um, and then you see the investors, you know, comfort, comfort our comfortability with selling naked put options, selling volatility. I've talked with people recently, you know, said that uh, people, people's Uber drivers telling them that they're selling now selling naked put options. And these are all signs of rampant euphoria. Seems like Uber drivers these days are the new uh, proverbial shoeshine boys with the hot stock tip grant. Uh, everyone's got a story about Uber drivers. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 true. But you know, Jesse's you're almost a little bit down on this on the value of anecdotal evidence. To me, that's some of the most valuable evidence out there because it's not in the media. It's this is stuff you're observing for yourself, and it's it's really by observing what's going on around you and trying to join those dots yourself that you that you can see inflection points because they tend to be reflex behavior before they're translated into a move in the stock market. You know, people get nervous and do things before they think to maybe sell some of their equities. So I, I think the value of anecdotal evidence is is supremely high. Yeah, absolutely. And and not like, I don't mean this to sound like some kind of voodoo or, you know, black magic, but I think it's the same reason why I love taking the subway in New York City, taking the bus, or you know, when I moved to San Francisco, you know, doing the same thing is because there's there's a pulse that you can, you can sense and that you can get a kind of a a general, um, you know, picture of how people are feeling. You know, what are people talking about? What is their tone, and and what is the sentiment? I, I think everything can be data, and everything can 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 factor in into your own decision making process, be it for investing or just to try and understand what's happening in the world. So I completely agree with that. Anecdotal evidence um, should not be downplayed. And I guess you could also say that if now the whole world is moving towards you know data and humongous data sets with 
big dimensionality. Uh, anecdotal evidence may be one of those things that people or, you know, or, or the participants in the market are not looking at. Well, there's there's one thing we've talked about, fundamental sentiment um, and a little bit of the, the technicals. I see breath is really waning in the markets. It's one of the things that gives me, that makes me more bearish right now. But really what most concerns me is the, is the structural, structural positioning in the markets. And there's, and again, in this area, a lot of guys who are a lot smarter than I am, you know, I think Chris Cole and Mike Green talked about this on Real Vision recently in a fascinating conversation. But I, I, I do think that, uh, and I've said this you know, for months now, the the stock market is as crash prone as it has ever been structurally. Um, you, I think it's impossible to call a crash. I recently discussed this with Mark Yusko on my podcast, but I, I really think structurally there's some big risks in the marketplace right now. And so I think for the the average investor, it really should just be in their most conservative positioning that they could ever be in within their own discipline. And I, I can't tell them what that discipline is, but it's you know uh, reduce exposure, uh, hedging, um, at, you know uh, piling up cash, whatever it is that fits their exposure, they should be in their most conservative position they possibly can. You know, Aaron, that could be one of the true nuggets that we've uncovered in Real Vision. You know, Jesse's a super bright guy, um, but what he says there, everybody should be listening to that now, thinking it through, writing it down, and doing something about it. Because, you know, when he talks about uh, it's really hard to call a crash and he doesn't want to call a crash, you know, Mark Yusko has come out quite vocally recently calling for a crash. Um, And, you know, it's just an opinion. It weighed up on years of experience and how people see the markets. But for anyone who looks at these markets where they are now, looks at valuations as we've gone through here, within your own discipline, with your own investment framework, being cautious right now is just a very, very sensible thing to do. And it's going to mean different things to different people. But that idea that there are times to just be really, really careful and you know maybe you miss out on the next 5%, the market goes up. But if after 5%, it goes up, things look a bit clearer, a little bit safer, go back in. But to look at the market that's high and get sucked into the emotion of it all, um, when a lot of really smart people like Jesse are saying, beware, um, it's it's a sure way to lose money in the long term. Fundamentally, I think, uh, you know, it, it's fascinating to me that Warren Buffett is not warning about stocks today when his measure is just as highly, suggests stocks are just as highly overvalued as they are today as they were back in 99, 2000. And he was warning back then. And, you know, he he wrote a couple of articles for Fortune um, about what that valuation meant for stock prices going forward. And the reason I like that, his metric, which is essentially... Um, the uh, the total value of equities in the market relative to GDP, market cap to GDP. And it's very highly negatively correlated with future uh, 10-year returns in the stock market. And right now, it suggests that annually, you know, we should expect a 2 3 4% loss in the stock market every year over the next 10. And this is so valuable for individual investors because I, I back-tested this. And if you just own stocks when that measure was uh, suggesting returns were going to be better than bonds, 
And then you sold stocks and, and owned bonds when bond yields were higher than that forecast, then you did awesome and you avoided some major bear markets in the process over the past 40, 50 years. And so it's just common sense. I want to own whichever one's going to pay me more. Own bonds or stocks, depending on which one is, is better better valued. And so that's that's my favorite measure. And, and uh, there, in terms of sentiment, I really do think margin debt is valuable because it shows potential supply and demand in the marketplace. When there's very high margin debt, to me, that's a lot of potential supply that you know comes in. And historically, that's the case. You only get crashes in the market when there's a bunch of forced liquidation. That's what margin debt suggests, is there's a more potential forced liquidation uh, in the markets today than there were in 2007 or 2000 prior to those, those bear markets. Um, so those are, those are some of my favorites. You know, that, that Buffett indicator, the, the presentation I'm giving tomorrow here in Vancouver, I have that chart front and center because I, I agree with Jesse completely. It's such a great, um, it's such a great barometer. Um, and it is an extremely elevated level. And it, like, as Jesse said in a previous segment, there, it's, it just screams caution. Margin debt is, is something I think a lot more people are familiar with. You always, always have high margin debt before, before crashes. And, and we're right back there again. You know, everywhere you look, um, whether you want to be bearish or just cautious, it seems to me this is not a time to be just outright bullish. There, there are so many amber and red lights flashing to me. It just behooves everybody to, to sit down, think about their portfolios and make sure that everything in it they own for a fundamental reason, not just because the market's been going up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Grant, all these indicators and metrics that Jesse mentioned, they're all available to the average investor. Um, and so hopefully when you hear this, stuff like price of sales, market cap GDP, market breadth equal and market cap weighted you know, for technicals, I mean, all these tools are available to you and you, know, you should consider them for your own investing. But Grant, at this point, I actually want to zoom out to 30,000 feet. You know, I try to think we start from a, a global lens first in that you know, we want to invest anywhere in the world where we find uh, good investment opportunities. That's Mark Yusko, founder and chief investment officer of Morgan Creek Capital Management. We want to try to avoid the home market myopia that uh, most people suffer from. They think all the smart people live where they live, and they tend to be overweight the assets of their home market. But at my core, my real lens is, is a value lens. I'm a value investor uh, in my soul. Uh, we like to search the world for attractively valued assets. And you know, one of my favorite lines is, you know, just buy what's on sale rather than you know, buy what you wish you would have bought. You know, the average investor constantly is buying things after they've gone up a lot uh, because of FOMO, fear of missing out. And you know, we think you should do the opposite. You should wait for things to fall below their fair value and, and buy with a margin of safety. So we kind of go from this lens and then we, we have a framework built around themes and, and let's, let's call that the filter that we put on top of the lens. And those themes are, are kind of multi-year or multi-decade trends that we think are going to drive investment returns. And, and that could be anything from, you know, the emergence of the uh, middle class and the emerging markets. It could be, you know, the changes in the energy market. It could be the, the aging population in the West and uh, demographic changes in healthcare. And, you know, that's where we, we start from. And all that goes to the, the last part of your question, which is, you know, how do we analyze markets and, and think about asset allocation? And, and to me, asset allocation is always the most important decision. 
yet it's where everybody spends the least amount of time. Most people spend all their time on security selection, yet security selection is only 15-ish percent of returns. 85% comes from asset allocation and portfolio allocation. And, and that doesn't just mean big assets like stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities. That also means geographies, sectors. But you know, most people don't know that over the last two decades, Chinese equities have outperformed U.S. equities. They're like, no, that can't be possible. So Grant, what I get out of there is it's not just about applying um, a thematic filter, as Mark would say. It, it, the important point here is to actually also think carefully about asset allocation and not just about security selection, because diversification is not owning equal amounts of utility and retail ETFs. And so then I asked Mark to take us through one of his themes and, and where it might lead him from an investing perspective. You know, there's the great line from Winston Churchill, the, the further you look back, the further forward you can see. Uh, if you don't understand history, if you don't respect history, you're doomed to repeat it. Centenea, Centenea I never, never pronounced his name right. But history is so important. And, you know, the liberal arts broadly are so important. And, you know, there's a great book called the Investing the Last Liberal Art. And when I think about history and I think about times in history, I like to say all the time, I do it on Twitter, is, you know, hashtag history rhymes. And, and I think today rhymes exactly like the late 1920s into the 1930s. And I've written a lot about this. I've talked a lot about this. Uh, I wrote a, a whole piece called Welcome to Hooverville, uh, where I think the election of, of Donald Trump uh, is very similar to the election of Herbert Hoover. You had a Republican sweep in 1928. You know, Hoover was the first Republican to win in, in Texas, the first Republican to sweep the South using the Southern strategy of white fright, you know, all the things that, that Donald Trump did to get it, to get elected. And I think the, the outcome is going to be very similar. You know, you had a president and, and Hoover with no experience. You had this Congress that promised all these things from tax reform to deport, deportation of immigrants to decrease regulatory reform. And, and what they didn't count on was a slowing of the economy in 1929. And they did all the wrong things. Uh, they did smooth Hawley in terms of, of trying to start a trade war and put up trade barriers. And in fact, all that happened was, was U.S. trade fell 35% compared to the rest of the world. Because for some reason, and you hear it in the rhetoric today, is people act like, well, the U.S. will just put up trade barriers and, and the other places won't fight back. Well, of course they'll fight back and we will lose because it's more important for us to trade outside than, than inside. So, you know, one of my heroes in, in the, the business, so to speak, Roger Babson, you know, wrote a letter about this uh, called Babson's Brilliance. You know, Roger Babson in 1927 warned, uh, he had these, these gatherings every year at uh, Babson College, and and he warned business leaders that that uh, you know the markets were extended and and nobody paid attention, and the markets went up a lot until 1928. And he said it again, and nobody paid attention, and the markets went up a lot, a lot from 28 to 29 with this final kind of 26 percent cathartic boom in the summer of 29. And on September 15th. Uh, 1929, he said, you know, I'll repeat what I said last year and the year before, that a crash is coming and it could be terrific. And two weeks later, Irving Fisher made the famous, now infamous quote, that the market had reached a permanently higher plateau and would never go down again. 
And, and you're hearing that again. You know, you're hearing Fed Chairman Yellen say, we won't have a financial crisis in our lifetime. Just a silly statement. Um, and so I, I fear that, that we're in a very similar uh, place to where we were in, in 1929. I fear that uh, leverage is uh, both personal leverage, corporate leverage has never been higher, just like in 1929. We had this boom in ETFs. Uh, just like we had the boom in these things called investment trusts, which were the same thing as ETFs. There's nothing new in this world. Um, and it caused a lot of capital flight into big cap stocks and capitalization waiting. And it exacerbated the moves of the market. But when it turns, it goes exactly the other way. And so what could have been a normal little contraction uh, turns into ultimately a, a big contraction and then ultimately with some policy errors, the Great Depression. So I'm not saying we're going to have soup kitchens and bread lines, although one could argue that 41 million people on food stamps is kind of like soup kitchens and bread lines uh, already. Um, but, you know, I, I, I could talk all day about this, but you don't have time for me to do that. And, and you probably want to ask me something else. You know, Greg, if someone wanted to turn that into a hot take, they could be like, oh, Mark Yusko's calling for a 1929 style crash. But that is not the case. And part of the reason I love listening to Mark talk was not only because he's such a student of history and looks at the big picture but i mean in what he said right there there is a logical sequence of events that could unfold maybe not right but it's 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 about looking at similar environments context and and where we are potentially in history and i just love the way he laid it out there and and i mean also i'm a big fan of roger babson but um when i was listening to this grant i actually couldn't help but uh, be reminded of your uh, consequence of economic peace presentation he gave back in 2014 yeah, look, I, I, I'm fortunate to have lost count of the number of hours I've sat talking to Mark over the years. He's just, I mean, he's an incredible guy to sit and talk this stuff through with. Um, he's he's such a wise man, and I mean that in the true sense of the word. And a lot of the things he talks about are history related, which is you know something we both connect on. And I think when you when you listen to this stuff, it it's, it always surprises me when. People like Mark will talk about the, the comparisons between now and, and the time of Hoover, for example. Um, and the parallels are right there. They're very, very clear. They're very obvious. Um, and, and they're remarkably similar. And then people get fixated on this whole, this guy's calling for a crash thing. Now, everybody who invests is at some stage in their process making a guess about the future. That's it. We're all trying to read tea leaves. None of us know what's going to happen. Um, and those of us that do are called insider traders and they tend to go to prison. But we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So, so you're pointing out when a guy's wrong is to miss the point completely. This is about trying to bring in the right factors, look at things through the right lens and make the best possible guess you can about the future. And to Mark's point and even to Churchill's point, you know, the further back you look, the further forward you can see. And all this stuff, it's all happened before. This is why history is so important, not just in finance, but in politics, uh, in you know relations worldwide. It's all happened before. You just have to read it and then try and apply the lessons from the past to today to give yourself, at, if nothing else, a better chance of, of, of guessing correctly about the future. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, then I asked Mark, you know, if there's any particular indicator that he likes that gives him a better chance. The one I like the best is is market cap to GDP. We've talked about that so far today. And the reason I like that is is it's logical, right? The the market capitalization of all the stocks in an economy should not be more than 70, 70% 
of the GDP. And anytime you're over 100, you're getting really extended. When you're at 132 or 133, where you are today, you're in silly land. Now, the problem is that ratio, like the CAPE ratio, it's not a very good short-term timing tool. It's a fantastic indicator of the next 10-year returns, right? We know over the next 10 years that based on these indicators, we're going to have zero to slightly negative returns in U.S. equities. That's just, that's just a mathematical certainty. So, but we don't know when that's going to happen. And there's the great line about, you know, great economist tells you what or when never together. Um, but one thing you can use for when, and this goes to the valuable part of your question, the most valuable indicator to me is dollar sign OEXA200R. And what that is, is the percentage of the uh, S&P 100 that are above their 200-day moving average. And any time that number is above 65, you can be fully invested and you can feel good. And anytime it goes below 65, you should really think about going to 50% cash. And if it goes below 50, you should get out and be 100% cash. So it's, it's actually a wonderful short-term market timing tool. And it's kind of logical. I mean, it's, it's a little bit coincident. It's not really a forecasting tool. It's kind of telling you what's going on, but telling you to, to act. Um, so I like that as a short-term tool. So whether it's over 10 or 20 years, it's practically a mathematical certainty um, that you'll realize negative returns on the market cap to GDP basis. Uh, but I don't know, Grant, it just feels like people are going to keep piling in equities, some due to FOMO, but there are structural and secular reasons why people will keep rushing off the cliff. I mean, we talked about the pension crisis and about how baby boomers, unfortunately, are going to, they're, they're piling into equities because they need the returns in order to finance their, their retirement. But this is not going to stop until, you know, they come back to their senses one by one or they hit the jagged rocks of reality below. Uh, but I just wanted to make one thing clear for listeners. Dollar sign OEXA200R um, is not a new model for, uh, for, for some kind of trading station or, or, or charting system. Uh, it's actually just the code that you can put into stockcharts.com and find the exact indicator that Mark was talking about. Ironically, the funny thing is this, this idea that everyone's piling into equities because of fear of missing out you need that to to force the blow off tops that's that's how these things happen you know they can't happen without that so you know for me as as we hover around these dangerously elevated levels the sooner you get that mad rush in by the people who are destined to go over the cliff the better because that's what clears things out that's what that's what causes the crash and gets us back to to the kind of value territory where you can invest for the long term Right, absolutely. And so now, Grant, we've covered valuations, we've covered fundamentals, uh, and we've also talked about sentiment and technical indicators. You know, Mark just gave us insight into how similar present-day conditions are to 1929, so we've gotten the historical perspective. But from here, let's look into the future a little bit and see if there are any ways for us to anticipate what's ahead. Key emphasis for us is actually creating a repeatable analytical framework. And so for us, we typically tend to focus, as I mentioned earlier, on both the liquidity cycle and the growth cycle. That's Tian Yang, head of research at Variant Perception, a macro research firm focusing on the use of leading indicators of economic growth and liquidity to create actionable insights and opportunities for their clients. Um, so here we're kind of very heavily influenced uh, by the work of the likes of, you know, Kindleberger and Minsky, looking at a lot of the historical boom-bust cycles. And what we realized is that a lot of the times it's very important to differentiate uh, between the two cycles. 
So the most powerful kind of big reflation cycles when you get the positive feedback loop between you know the real economy and the credit cycle kind of feeding into each other on the way up. And equally, when you get a lot of the, the bust, it tends to be those feeding into each other on the way down. Um, and obviously, when you get one cycle moving up and one cycle moving down, that tends to be more of the model through kind of scenario. Um, so for us, it's ability, trying to build a lot of indicators that will tend to lead where we think we're going in terms of growth and liquidity and will tend to help us flag the turning points. So we'll tend to really try and emphasize uh, if we see certain turning points in the leading data. And then with that, it kind of provides us uh, with the context to then understand some of the more traditional kind of financial tools, right? So once we understand if we think there's a turning point coming in growth or liquidity, then we'll look at what's being priced into the market, you know, in terms of what's market sentiment, you know, what evaluations, how people position. Uh, so, so this is kind of a framework that's really designed to flag the really big um, kind of opportunities as well as the big bust. So, you know, the holy grail of that is essentially a situation where you have everybody's bearish on one thing, you know, everyone's underweight or positioned badly, valuations are cheap, but leading indicators of both growth and liquidity are turning up um, or vice versa. So there's a lot packed in that last clip, but I want to get to the first thing that I think might be on the minds of listeners who are less familiar with this topic, and that is global excess liquidity. I think we need to define what that actually means in practice. Excess liquidity is um, an absolutely critical concept for us and in terms of how we look at the world. So I think that tends to be lots of definitions of liquidity out there from you know, various people. So people look at, you know, plot FX reserves against certain things, right? They'll look at, you know, debt to GDP, look at M2. Um, look at you know central bank balance sheets, um, and, and essentially what, when we looked into how to define liquidity correctly, we found most of these indicators tended to be coincident with where the market was doing. So basically, by the time you saw it rise, the market already moved. So it just tended to kind of help you explain roughly what happened. Um, the the one indicator we found that genuinely leads is what we define as global excess liquidity. So this is basically global real narrow money growth minus global economic growth. Um, so the idea is that we want to focus on how much kind of high-powered money is being created in the system globally, which is not contributing towards inflation or real economic activity, and which therefore will tend to be excess and tend to flow into financial uh, markets. Um, so this is very much kind of almost analogous to um, a cash on the sideline kind of concept or a safety net kind of concept for us. Um, the, the, the key thing we would emphasize is we focus a lot specifically on the correct definition of money growth where for us, it's um, typically M1 or, or equivalent kind of measures. So it's looking at um, the currency in circulation as well as kind of the demand deposits that's being created by, by the uh, commercial banking system. So it's very important to capture both the impact of central banks as well as commercial banks. And it's really the interaction of the two, uh, the two uh, bits that's going to ultimately determine where the, uh, where the uh, monetary conditions are actually loose or tight. You know, Grant, that last thing that Tian said there, needing to account for central banks and commercial banks, and I guess the demand deposits that are created, I think that's so important. And to have that metric in M1 that you can measure, I think it's crucially important. It reminds me of uh, a Real Vision TV interview that we did with Daniel Want. Um, and I think it, it kind of, I guess it speaks to as well the fundamental mistake that neo-Keynesians make, and that they completely ignore the financial sector in their models. Right now, is leading indicators of growth for all holding up fine in the world. So there's very little signs of U.S. recession. Um, you know, growth is absolutely fine, right? So you're kind of left with this state of the world where growth is fine, but liquidity is bad. So that's why it's not an outright um, bearish, super negative kind of outlook for now. But 
given that clearly, you know, if the average US cycle is five, six years and we're already eight years in, we're probably nearer the end than the beginning. And if we're coming off cycle lows in, you know, the likes of credit spread and so forth, it doesn't take a lot when liquidity is low for that um, positive feedback loop to start where if for some reason we get some stress in financial markets, you know, maybe due to Italian elections you know, or, or China or something, then potentially it might cause credit spreads to widen and it feeds back into corporate balance sheets. And then suddenly because the liquidity wasn't there before to where all the buyers come back in and kind of um, the, the, the money flows back into high yield, for example, then, you know, economic data might start deteriorating and you kind of complete that loop. And so that's the kind of danger right now, which is why we're advocating saying, you know, increasing cash a little bit in the portfolio, you know, giving up a little bit of the yield that you might have to hold some of these tail hedges. But um, as I say, because growth is still okay, but liquidity is bad, it's not necessarily outright, you know, sell everything and run for the hills kind of thing. You know, Aaron, go, going through all these things, there's, there's one thing that really smacks me between the eyes, and that is the fact that there are, there are so many guys out there, incredibly smart guys like Jesse, like Tian, like, uh, like Mark Yusko. They've all got their favorite measurements. They've all got the things they rely on. None of them are foolproof. Um, you know, they all have varying degrees of success, but, but people find stuff that works for them, and, and they watch them religiously, and they tend to... Uh, force themselves to take action when when signals they trust start to flash warning signs. But what's what strikes me is here are three guys, all of whom have different ways of looking at things, all of whom are saying we're we're in dangerous territory now, and you should be raising cash in your portfolio. And I think that's important because even if you don't have your own metric, uh, you kind of like hearing what other people have to say. There is a common message here. Um, reached via different directions by, by a group of incredibly smart people, and that is caution. It's time to be very, very careful. Yeah, absolutely. And Grant, one thing that I love, and just going back to Tian for a moment, I really like the back and forth, the thinking between the real real economy and the credit creation liquidity sector. Um, and especially, I like it's a nuanced view because the framework allows you to take um, sort of a cautious, you know, it's, it's not binary, it's not like, you know, crash or, you know, blow off top. There's some nuance to it. And all our contributors, as you said there, are so far advocating caution. But it's interesting just how they arrive at a similar conclusion via different methods. Einstein has that quote, right? Well, I think it was Einstein. It's kind of, you know, you want to make things as simple as you know, possible, but no simpler. Um, the kind of Occam's razor. So I guess, I guess for me, there's three, key, three things I always track, right? And that's always a starting point for everything. So one is global excess security that we kind of talked about already. Um, the second would be the U.S. recession signal we built, which is the, the mark of switching kind of regime shift. So the key idea there is you're looking for a little bit of stress across every part of the economy, in particular, a little bit of stress in, in the soft data alongside the hard, hard data, right? Because that's the first sign that potentially positive feedback loops are starting. So that, that kind of regime shifting um, U.S. recession model. Um, and the third thing for me is we have um, essentially a, a correction signal, which is based off the sim very similar kind of um, idea, where most of the time the market functions normally. So you get a lot of sector rotation, right? Even if one sector gets hit super hard, typically, you know, money will flow somewhere else. The times to worry is when risk aversion picks up. Everybody's trying to go to cash, so then, every then you get the crash. So it's very similar to the recession idea where you're looking for a little, like a little bit of stress across all the different um, markets. And when you see that, that's potentially the warning sign, rather than seeing any one sector kind of blow up. Um, so there, it's basically tracking a lot of intermarket relationships, you know, equities, fixed income, vol, you know, credit. And if you see a little bit of stress across the board, that's like, you know, really a lot more worrying. Um, so I think 
those are probably the three, global access liquidity, um, U.S. recession, and the correction signal. Um, I, I guess, now, now that I think about it, I, I guess why I like them is also they, they tend to be slightly more general. So they're not very specific indicators where I'm like, okay, there's one magic series that I track that will, will kind of you know, tell me what's going on. I think I, I like them because they tend to be more diffusion-type concepts. Um, so they're not too dependent on, on any kind of one um, any kind of one input. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of um, a lot of kind of redundancy built into it, but they kind of get to the essence of how we think the mark, the world tends to work, right? Which is most of the time things operate normally, so you can be dependent on your kind of various regression, continuous model, cycle kind of work. But then the times to really care is when the regime shift kind of happens. And it'll happen when the safety net's gone, and then when you see um, kind of this um, diffusion of stress uh, starts to go up, basically. And so, Grant, to your point, and what you mentioned earlier, there is no one magic formula or indicator. And it's a big reason why we, I don't know, I want to do this story, because I think it's really important to hear multiple perspectives and to learn about different frameworks, styles, and approaches. And hopefully this leaves our listeners with something to think about in the months ahead. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. There's, there's so much in there. Um, but I, I, just, to, just to reiterate what I said earlier, there, there's one thing to take away here. There, there is no magic bullet to this. Uh, there's no indicator that works flawlessly there's no number that you can look at that's a switch an on-off switch for your portfolios you have to pay attention and you have to find things that work for you and not assume that they're going to be successful every time what even even if you you shift your portfolio you make a change in your investment you you add cash uh whatever it may be you you still have to constantly monitor it and make sure that you have the right positions on at all times yeah absolutely right grant well you know what let's move on next to our final segment called things i got wrong where we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that they got from that experience so that listeners hopefully don't make the same mistakes and this week i had the great pleasure to speak with josh crumb all right so this week i am pleased to be joined by the founder and chief strategy officer of gold money inc uh, previously the co-founder and CFO of Coffee Flower and also a former macro strategist at Goldman Sachs. Josh, uh, so happy to have you with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So before we get into the main thrust of this segment, things I got wrong, um, can you just maybe let our listeners know or let, let them in, peek behind the curtain a little bit into how you look at markets and how you think about them? Yeah, sure. In fact, it's, it's probably a good way to segment into, uh, I guess, the topic of this, this conversation as well. Um, and I apologize. I'm going to use a, uh, a Goldman Sachs term here, um, but you know, trying to trying to keep yourself long-term greedy. Uh, so, you know, so some people probably heard that term before, but it's it's thinking about you know the long-term value of, of relationships and profit opportunities, and uh, you know, not getting yourself into the the traps of, of being short-term greedy and taking shortcuts. Um, and and so yeah, that's 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 kind of how I, I I try to think about things uh, always is is within some sort of fundamental framework um, to, to always be looking in the long run. Interesting, and, and also um, I guess maybe I'll press you a little bit on this. Is I know you have such a, a fascinating, diverse background. I know you have a background in, in engineering and science, and you have an interesting uh, way of looking at markets in the world in terms of time and energy. So can you speak a little bit to that? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, so I. I was one of these guys that, uh, you know, I, I don't even think I knew what a stock or a bond was until I was in my, you know, my early 20s. Um, I, uh, you know, c- complete opposite to, to my gold money co-founder uh, and founder Roy Sabog, who, uh, you know, was trading stocks from, I think, you know, 15 or 16 years old. So, you know, we, we come from very different approaches. You know, my, I, I'm an engineer as an undergrad, 
And so I've always looked at, uh, at sort of math and systems, uh, you know, whether it's engineering or uh, markets, uh, I, I always kind of take a systems or, or a complexity theory sort of approach to things. Um, and I've, I've, I guess I've, it's, it's helped me analyze markets in probably a way, you know, at some level of, you know, what we would call first principles in, in, uh, in either engineering or, or philosophy. And, and kind of keeps me away from all of the, uh, I guess, the hubris of, uh, uh, you know, of modern, modern you know, talking head markets. No, I, and I really wanted to get you to, I guess, mention that and talk about it a little bit because I think there's, there's, so much, um, there's so much benefit from having this interdisciplinary, uh, maybe a scientific background and, and, with, and bringing that to markets and, 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 and allowing you to look at things in, in very unique and, and di- you know, different ways. Um, so I'm glad we got that out there. So Josh, let me let me get to the meat of this segment, which is things I got wrong. So can you tell us about a time maybe you made an investing mistake or some kind of mistake, you know, any kind of mistake that you made and the important lesson that you drew out of it? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so you know, I, I started in the sort of 2005, 2006, 2007, uh, you know, call it bubble in resource stocks. You know, I, I knew there was projects that I, you know, owned shares of, um, you know, whether, you know, through options or purchasing things and, you know, you do your fundamental valuation, you know, there's no value there, but you, you, you know, you get caught up in the hype of the market, you know, you, you, you caught up, you know, in the relative multiples. And, and so, it, so, so a lot of times when it's, it's patient, people think about not buying, but I, you know, I'd say probably one of my biggest, uh, learned lessons is, you know, when I had, you know, lots of paper wealth that, uh, that, that rapidly disappeared in the financial crisis, even though I knew what I owned, uh, you know, didn't have the fundamental value and you just get caught up in the greed of, of, you know, watching things go up. So I think, you know, knowing when to buy is always very important, but also knowing when to sell is very important. So I, I can see how that fits in perfectly with the long-term greedy uh, approach that you're, you're talking about. Are there any other kind of maybe more applicable um tools or actions that you think fit into that same framework in addition to, you know, knowing when to take profits and, you know, not seeing that paper, you know, not seeing those paper gains vaporize uh, when you have some sort of systemic event? Yeah, I think, well, I think it always comes down to people too. You know, I think my first, you know, in that first kind of example, I, I was talking a little bit about assets. Um, and, but, but the other part that I think it's just dealing with volatility, uncertainty is you really need to be, you know, uh, whether it's buying a company that has the management that, that knows how to deal with these things, you know, management that, that, are, that is also you know, long-term greedy. And, and you know, I, I would actually say that's another big part of investing is, is understanding uh, that there's just so many variables that, you, that nobody can account for. And what's your management team going to do when, you know, when the, uh, you know, when things go wrong or, or, or encounter the unexpected, um, what are they going to do? Because, you know, ultimately you're investing, you're investing in that management team. Um, are they the people that, that are short-term greedy and are going to look out for themselves and, and cut and run uh, or, you know, or fall for the latest, you know, pitch from an investment banker or, or something like that? Or are they the people that have that same fundamental framework uh, to solve the hard problems and take the high road? Um, so, so I think, and, and I guess that can also be applied to, to, to partnerships as well. And so, you know, I, I'd say probably another one of my mistakes is, is also recognizing and, and, you know, working with someone, you know, in, in an entrepreneurial venture in the past, um, you know, where, where I knew that they were short-term greedy. And I thought that I could, uh, you know, I could kind of, 
you know, make the best out of, out of the situation because of that. Um, but, but those always end up going the wrong way. So, so I think, you know, whether it's investing in, in, in yourself or in a partnership or investing in a, you know, a passive investment, I think, I think it's just so important to always have that, that mindset. Yeah, Josh, I, I think your, your point about people is, is so interesting um, because I remember growing up playing tennis, my you know, coach would always tell me, you know, adversity is when, is what reveals character. But how do you, I mean, how do you assess like, like that character and how do you assess, like, what are the things you look for to see if someone is or is not short-term greedy? Um, you know, we don't, we can't put people, we can't back test people. I mean, I guess you can look at their history and see how they dealt with past adversities, but how do you, how do you approach that as you're, you know, looking at a new venture or looking at a, a new partnership, as you were saying? Absolutely. I, I think somewhere down the line, uh, probably one of the most interesting pieces of advice or um, just, I guess, wisdom that was, was told me is when you think about trust, uh, too many people don't think about multivariables. <laughs> so so here, here, sorry, bring the engineer back again. But, um, you know, so, so people think I can either trust them or not, that it, it's some sort of binary equation. But the, but the problem is there's actually two elements of trust. You have to trust someone's intelligence, uh, and you also have to trust their intent. And, and those things don't always overlap. You know, you could have the smartest guy in the room, you know, working at maybe one of my former employers, um, but you would never trust his intent that he's just looking out for his own, you know, his, his own profit. Or you could have, like, that neighbor next door that will, you know, literally lend you anything, you know, the shirt off their back. But but not not exactly the most intelligent person. <laughs> so you know so, so you have right. you have to have that overlap. And and I think looking for signs and people uh, that they have both of that that you can trust both their their long term intent uh, and their intellect to, to again to, to deal with uncertainty or solve un, unforeseen problems. Um, I think that's you know that that's just not, that's not just a market lesson. But I you know I try to teach that to my son, and that that's a life lesson is is, is you know really understanding uh, trust. Um, there was a, um, a two by two matrix I recently saw that actually kind of goes along the lines of what you're describing here. Essentially, uh, along one axis, you have uh, corruptibility and on, along the other axis, you have uh, capability. And, you know, it's the ones, you know, you can essentially put kind of like McKinsey style labels on each quadrant. Um, but kind of thinking along those dimensionalities, you know, if, if you have the high, highly capable and highly corruptible, that's where you have the sociopaths. Um, and then where you have the low corruptibility, but then, you know, low, ca- low capability, then that's where you kind of have, actually, I don't know if those are the useful idiots. The useful <laughs> idiots are the ones who are highly corruptible. <laughs> Anyways, my, my point is that, you know, it's important to think, it's important to think about these things along different dimensions. And I think uh, you make a great point and it is uh, something for, for our listeners to think about not only in their own investing when, you know, con- be it considering management teams, uh, but also getting into business and, and ventures with other people. So uh, I, that's great advice, Josh. And thanks for sharing that with us. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Gold Money, where they can learn more about what you're doing? And um, I, you guys have great uh, research that you put out on the website as well. So can you uh, share that with us? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, so Gold Money is, is a business, uh, you know, actually Roy Spog and I, who I mentioned before, actually started a company called Bitcoin. Uh, and so some people may, may know it as Bitcoin. Uh, but then we acquired and merged uh, with, with uh, a company called Gold Money. And what we do is, is we're a place to, to be able to buy um, but also use uh, precious metals as, as everyday money. Uh, so, so it's, you know, I, I think, you know, using technology, we've created the, the easiest and, and cheapest way there's ever been to own physical precious metals. Um, you'll buy and sell metals for half a percent. Um, and 
but but then also be able to use it uh, in, in everyday transactions, be able to send send gold and, and spend it like money. You know, we've always seen uh, we've always seen gold and precious metals as as the ultimate form of money. Um, but there was never been really the technology to be able to use it in day-to-day transactions. Uh, so that's that's what we've uh, put together. Um, it's you know it's very easy to open up an account at goldmoney.com. Uh, we've got uh, you know clients from from all over the world. Uh, you know close to two billion dollars in, in customer assets on the platform. Uh, everything's fully reserved, fully insured. Um, and so that yeah, I guess that's Goldman. Yeah, it's really fascinating what you guys are doing, and I know a lot of our listeners are are sympathetic, but are also aware of of gold and and gold and all the functions of money that it fulfills. Um, so I guess to those listeners, I encourage you guys to check it out. Um, you know, if 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 sound money is your thing, then you know you should be on your own personal gold standard. I think gold money has some interesting solutions for that. So, uh, Josh, thanks so much again for joining us today. Great, thank you for having me. So guys, if you're interested to hear more from Josh and or maybe following him, he's on Twitter at Josh Crum. So make sure to check him out there. But I just love you know talking to Josh because he's a true polymath, and I think he's kind of a hidden gem at least amongst Real Vision TV contributors. Um, but Grant, I want to ask you, what did you think about what Josh had to say about being long-term greedy and not straying from that perspective? You know. The first time I met Josh, I went to see him and Roy in their office in, in Toronto. Just kind of, I called him up and said, hey, look, I just want to come see you guys and see what you're doing. And uh, you know, I sat down with them for what was going to be 30 minutes and ended up being almost three hours. And yeah. you know, when I walked out, I, I was almost frightened at how smart those guys are. It, it's one of those holy cow moments. You know, these guys are supremely bright. And Josh and I's paths have crossed a number of times since then. You know, I've interviewed him a couple of times at Real Vision, and he's – He's he's a genuinely nice guy, but he, as you, to your point, Aaron, he's so smart. It it really is quite frightening, um, and I think you know his his uh, his lesson there is a crucial one for everybody to understand. This whole idea of time horizons is is so important, and and the long term um, is what we're all in it for. You know, short term gains come and go, and if you get too fixated on the short term, you miss the trends, and the trends are where you make real money when you're investing. So I, you know, I think learning the hard way that you have to pay attention to that long-term cycle is is a crucial lesson for everybody to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Grant, I think this brings us to the end of this episode. Just a quick legal disclaimer before we go. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors only. So again, do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly. Yes, next week we will not be back with our usual segments as we are on a little summer hiatus. Um, We'll be taking a bit of a break. But guys, fear not. Grant and I will be back with some season break content and some surprises for you, including some returning guests and even some new formats that we'll be experimenting with to see uh, how you guys like it. So stay tuned for that. Also, just another reminder before we go that if you are interested in the podcast hosting role sitting here alongside me in uh, Aaron's absence and you think you have what it takes, then please send us an email uh, to podcast at realvision.com with the subject line podcast hosting role and we will get back to you with more details. If you have an interesting question about this week's show or anything else that you've heard on Adventures in Finance, then we'd love to hear from you. So send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us shoot up the rankings. Supposedly. I still want proof. If you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course, podcast episodes, then do follow us on Twitter, at uh, Real Vision is the handle. You can find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. And finally, you can follow me on Twitter, at TTMYGH. And if the mood takes you, if I can borrow a phrase, you can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. 
We will see you next week with some special content. Thanks for listening. listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com